If you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9, we're almost done with the plagues. And uh, it'll be nice to not be declaring God's wrath every Sunday for a while, but so far it's, uh, it's been an adventure. Um, I don't know if anyone saw this morning the, uh, the sunrise. I wasn't up like to see the sunrise, but after it came up, um, I had to turn around because I forgot something at home. And I got to drive by Lake Stevens and where you can see the mountains, and it was incredible uh just pinks and oranges and with the mountains there it's one of those moments where you just kind of um just go wow um you don't really have any other response necessarily for it it was just beautiful um and i remember the the old saying that something to the effect of uh pink sky morning sailors heed warning and pink sky night sailors delight and so I guess that means that we're in for another storm, um, which will really bite because I'm just so tired of the snow. There was a time when I really loved the snow when I was a teacher and they always canceled school. Um, but I'm not so excited when it hangs around for three weeks and life seems to stop. But um, on that note, I do love storms. Uh, I'm a huge fan of storms. I, don't, I only watch a few uh, TV shows because um, I play a lot of Wii now. But I, I only watch a few TV shows and the uh, other than Lost, which begins January 21st, in case you're wondering, um, huge fan. And I spent some time like a nerd on YouTube the other day looking for Lost secret videos because they, they do post them there. And yeah, that's nerdy. So the other, the other show that I occasionally watch is a show called Storm Chasers. I don't know if you've seen Storm Chasers, but I have this weird attraction to storms. Um, but these guys and, and girls uh, go around in, in cars and they, they chase storms throughout the Midwest uh, generally. And they see a storm and they have all their internet stuff hooked up and then they drive right into them. And they say, I guess they're scientists, I don't know, but they say they're there you know, for science and to figure out what makes the storms and how to um, predict the storms so that they can protect people from the storms. But they really all just look like a bunch of adrenaline junkies that drive straight into the storms. And I would love to be one. I would love to be one. Um, I'm a big fan of rain and stormy weather. Um, I love thunder. I love rain. I'm the kind of guy that likes to walk out and stand in the rain um, with a few clothes on. But I, I just love it. I love it when the lightning comes. And I like it when the power goes out and you have to light the candles. And I almost look forward to it. Um, I like when the wind blows so hard that the windows are shaking and trees are falling. And I just love storms. And I think that um, if, if I could be the guy that jumps, I think we have a picture of the car they drive. There's like a tank. If I could be in that thing and just drive right into the storm. I mean, they're not really protected by that thing, I don't think. But it would be so exciting for me um, because I really like that kind of weather. And I would do it in a second if I could. Kind of like if you could go to the moon. Like if they said, hey, you want a trip to the moon? I'd say, yes. I wouldn't even hesitate. I'll go. It might be one way. Okay. I mean, it's just, that's exciting to me. So I, uh, I think the attraction for me at the, at the core of a storm is just the, the sense of, of just awesomeness. You know, like Kung Fu Panda, pure awesomeness. And it's just like, I, I, awe, I think, is the only word to, to describe it. It's just that feeling you get when you see the, the beautiful sunset um, or, or sometimes the birth of your child, or uh, you know, big explosions. Another show that's called uh, 
uh, destroyed in seconds, I think, that has just like big explosions of stuff, and you just kind of go, yeah. I mean, it's just like, cool. It's like the kid with fireworks. He just blows up stuff. Why? Because you can. That's why we do that. So I like that it's just sometimes those, those great storms fill me with so much awe. And, and awe is, the, I think, the best word I can use to describe it. I don't like to use the word fear, um, although I'll use that a lot today, because fear has kind of been hijacked to just mean like scared. And I'm not scared of the storms. I'm not scared to be struck by lightning. I figure if I get struck by lightning, I am meant to die. I mean, that is something I have no control of, and it's gotten close. I mean, within like 100 feet, it was close. But God wanted me not to die that day. But I, I'm in so much awe of the power and the beauty of these storms. And sometimes I just sit there and go, oh, I have no words. And I think that uh, awe, well, I'll tell you the definition I'm going to use. And, and awe is, is partly this emotional and partly intellectual response that, that fills us with a little bit of dread, just a little bit, um, a little bit of reverence and respect and a lot of mystery and wonder. And it's so much so where you see these things and you, at least me, you want to be closer to them. You kind of want to, you're drawn to them. And that's the, the feeling of awe that creates in us. And Psalm 19.1, a very well-known psalm, says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And in this text today, through Exodus, well, most of Exodus chapter 9, uh, God unleashes from the sky this perfect storm that I think a lot of, at least myself, Christians read over this and kind of go, oh, it's a storm. And they don't really dwell on the size and the massiveness and the awe-inspiring nature of the storm. And it is intended to demonstrate, God says, quite frankly, His power. And it is intended, in addition, to declare as He unleashes this power, His name to both Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to the Israelites and to us. Because this is not a myth, this is not a made-up narrative, this is an actual event that's been recorded in history, and it's awesome. And I want us to dwell on what it is that we might leave here with a sense of awe for our God. Now, at this point, Pharaoh has experienced a lot of what I would consider awesome things. He's gone through six, six plagues, and... Those six plagues would hopefully inspire anyone to have this experience of like, holy Moses. Hey, hey, ironic. Holy cow, this is amazing. The Nile River was turned to blood, and that's thousands of miles of river. That's not just a little pool. Uh, frogs covered the nation. Gnats started coming up everywhere out of the floors of the houses even. Flies attacked everybody and everything, and livestock just died, but the livestock of the uh, Israelites did not. And then the last plague we saw were boils. People were covered with boils from head to toe, on the heels of their feet, so much the magicians would not even show themselves. And so, throughout all these plagues, what we see, though, is not only this power of God, but a God who, ironically, is very slow and patient to punish or end this nation and destroy the nation. He, in fact, tolerates this nation for some time. 
and giving them opportunities to repent. And as he does that, as he unleashes his, his wrath and his power, at the exact same time, according to Romans 9, he does it to not only declare his justice, but to declare to those who love him, in this case the Israelites and all Christians, how rich and glorious his mercy is for those whom he loves. And so we're going to read in Exodus chapter 9, and then uh, hopefully I'll explain to you a little bit in detail what the storm was actually like, and you will just be blown away because I've just been thinking about it and uh, wishing that it, I was there to see it. So it's kind of one of those things when you go to heaven, like, okay, Lord, show me, like on the cloud TV, like how like the world was created. Like, show me that. Like, what happened to the dinosaurs? You know, you just want to see that stuff. So hopefully he has like a little Blu-ray up there and we can like flip through it. So... Verse 13 in Exodus 9 is where we're at. We'll read the rest of the chapter and it will kind of give us a context for the whole story following um, uh, the boils that had happened. Verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that, you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And now therefore send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. And then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that may be hail in all of the land of Egypt, on man and beast, and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. And then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt, and there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, a very heavy hail such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck down everything that is in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. And then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I, my people, are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there have been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. And Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. And But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down, the barley was in the ear, and wax was in the bud, flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. And so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and thunder, and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart. 
he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Now, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh in in kind of three different times, mainly. We see three cycles of of three different types of plagues. And in in these ten plagues, really... The tenth is the final plague, but in these nine plagues, he comes the first time, he comes the fourth time, and he comes the seventh time. And every time he goes before and he speaks God's words, he says, Thus says the Lord, and then he calls Pharaoh to release the people that are serving him, using the same word, that they might serve me and worship God as they are worshiping Pharaoh in many ways as God. And following each opportunity to repent, God declares that, Basically, if you do not listen, I'm going to send a new level of devastation that's worse than before. And so the, each section of three, and really each plague, progressively gets worse. And so with the seventh plague, God tells Pharaoh that I'm going to do something a little bit differently. I'm going to send them on yourself. And you look at, if you look in the notes of most of the Bibles, we generally read from the ESV, it should say literally, on your heart. So it says, I'm going to send all these plagues the rest of the plagues on your heart, that they will know there is no God like me in all the earth. And Proverbs 4.23 says that the heart is the source or the spring of life. And if you're, the Hebrews understood the heart that was essentially the whole of man, everything that's emotional, intellectual, psychological, that was representative of what man was. And the heart governed the inner man, the whole inner man, and whatever the heart or condition of the heart was in the inner man, that dictated or explained what he did as the outer man, if you will. So like a lot of times, the other show that we watch with our kids is Little House on the Prairie. It's the best show. Our kids are kind of getting like warped by it a little bit because they're starting to call Kayla and I Ma and Pa, which is a little strange. But Pa's a pretty rocking guy, so I'm okay with that. But a lot of times you'll see on that show like kids that are just brats. Okay? And so... Or children will ask, like, why are they like that? Why are they doing it? Why are they being selfish? And so you can tell people they're, they're just selfish, but really the reason they are selfish, and we tell them this, is that they are sad in their hearts. There's a heart problem. The heart is sick. The heart is broken. And so our children now see, like, you know, see a newscast with some person that's done something bad, and they're like, oh, that person's sad in their heart, aren't they? It's like, yes, they are. Because sometimes as religious Christians, believers, whatever, a church, we spend so much time on the outside sins and the outside problems that we don't ever address what the true issue is. And that bleeds over into how we even parent our kids sometimes. We're so worried about behavior that we never actually address the heart. And the heart is what God, says, God searches. And the heart, the Bible says, is what is blind. And it's the heart that we all speak from. And it's the heart that either loves God or hates Him. And so, without a new heart, because we are born, we are in the womb, David says, with a broken heart, with a sinful heart. And so without a new heart, God's Word, like Pharaoh, will not lead them, us, to know God. It will, in fact, I believe, harden the heart further. To deny that one true God. Someone smarter than me, it could have been a Puritan, I don't know, I hear guys quote this a lot, but they said that the same sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. And so, 
in order to know God and fear Him and be in awe of Him, He has to give us a new heart that we might return to Him. Jeremiah, I think, says it very well. The prophet, speaking God's words in 24-7, says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. If you take out that middle section, which is a nice adverbial clause, which you could, because I'm an English teacher, so go with it, says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. God gives us the heart, then we return to him. Now, in verse 15, God says to this guy with a broken heart, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and could have cut you off from the earth. He basically tells Pharaoh that I have tolerated your sin and your disobedience when I didn't have to. It's amazing to imagine being there as Moses is telling Here's what God says, and speaking for God, telling Pharaoh all these things. He's hearing all these things. I have tolerated your sin when I didn't have to. I could have wiped you out at any moment. I don't need ten plagues to release my people. But I have been patient with you. I have been slow to anger with you. In fact, I have shown you mercy as I have unleashed my wrath by not wiping you out. And praise God that He doesn't wipe us out when we sin. Can you imagine that? The moment you sin, you burst into flames. I was thinking about all the guys, and there are a lot of them, like 100%, who've got issues with lust. And if they went to the supermarket, you see guys just like bursting into flames everywhere. What happened? Well, just sinned, you know. There's a reality that I'm thankful to God that He doesn't do that. And in early in, in Genesis, the, the book of beginnings, the book right before, prior to Exodus, in Genesis 6, as he is about to flood the earth, he looks upon the earth and he says, the world is evil and the hearts of men are doing evil and intending to do evil continually. So I'm going to flood it and wipe it clean. And so he does. And he, by grace, preserves Noah and his family and the animals and he puts them on the ark. And you think, okay, he cleaned it up. It's all over, right? When he gets out of the ark, Noah puts up an altar. And he worships God, thanking him for what he has done in saving them. And here's what he says. After they get out of the ark, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I'll never again curse the ground. Puts a rainbow in the sky. Woohoo! For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. It's still evil. It's still intended towards evil. And I think that We don't actually believe that. The world doesn't talk like that. We don't recognize that we are evil and broken. We have arguments all the time about, are you born good? Are you born evil? Are you born clean slate? We make light as a result because we don't view ourselves as those rebellious brats. We make light of our sin and we don't see the mercy that God gives us by not ending us. Now the plagues are are merciful in the sense that he doesn't cut off Pharaoh, which he could have, could have ended the nation at any moment if he wanted to. And each plague then is another opportunity to repent. And another, and another, and another, and another. But eventually, those nothers, which isn't a word my wife tells me, but those another plagues will end. And the opportunities will end. Peter wrote about it. The people were facing persecution in the new church and they were going, where's Jesus? He said he's going to return again. 
What's going on? Why isn't he here? All these Christians are dying. And Peter writes in one of his epistles, verse uh, 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. He's patient, waiting for those who could and will believe. And so God patiently endures uh, Pharaoh's self-exaltation and basically tells me, look, um, I have uh, created you. I raised you up. I made you king. I have, in fact, blessed you and protected you this entire time. And I can end you at any moment. And I've done this so that I could use your disobedience to show you my power, your people your, your power, my power, the Israelites, my power, my name, and the rest of the world, which is us. And since 1440, which is when the first Bible was really starting to be printed, there was copies before that, but when the Gutenberg Press came out and started producing the Bibles, the Bible now is the best-selling, most prolific book available. Up to six billion copies, they can't even estimate. The story has gone forth everywhere. This recording of history has gone forth everywhere. Some of the statistics, 95% of people in the United States have a Bible in their house. Only about 40% read it. But it's like 85% have like four. But 95% have a Bible in their home. Have the story there that's been declared. In 2005, at least one book of the Bible had been translated into 24 of 2,400 of the 6,900 languages. And the United States Bible Societies are presently assisting over 600 Bible translation projects. And the Bible is available in the whole or part in some 98% of the world's population in the language with which they are fluent. The story has been proclaimed to the world. And it's not just a story. It's the tale and the recording of God's power, of God's greatness, of God's mercy, of God's wrath, and yet God's grace. And so he says, because you have disobeyed, because I have let you exalt yourself, here comes a plague. And God informs him that the seventh plague is going to be a big storm. And it's unlike any storm that has been seen in Egypt. And that's a phrase that the pharaohs themselves used to use. They would look at their own greatness. Look, I built a new pyramid. Or look at my great fields or whatever. And they would say, nothing like this has ever happened in Egypt. As they spoke of their own greatness. And so God says, well, there's a storm coming. And it hasn't been seen in Egypt since its foundations and nation. And at this point... If it's about 3600 B.C. when uh, Egypt was founded, and this is about 2,000 years past that, so about 2,000 years they have not seen a storm like what's going to happen. And they have seen some hailstorms and some precipitation. Around Cairo, the average uh, was approximately about two inches of precipitation per year, which is not a lot for people in the Northwest. We had, That's nothing, okay? But... They had hailstorms before, rarely, but they had them. And any time they had some strange hailstorm or rainstorm, they'd make a new god about it, because then you had someone to pray to. So they had rain gods and wind gods and, and crop gods and hail gods and all kinds of gods, of, that, which God, none of them protect them from God's great storm that happens here. Now, by grace, though, God tells him that for the first time, you can be saved from the storm. Your crops can't, but you can. Go tell right now your people to bring in their livestock and to come in that they might be saved from the wrath to come. 
And so um, hailstorms, I don't know about you, but they don't seem to be like a big deal around here. So I don't know if they listened and went, yeah, right, protect from the hail, okay. But obviously some did. But I've never been personally really scared of a hailstorm. I mean, I'm the kind of guy that walks out in the hailstorm, right? I think it'd be fun because all you end up is little pieces of styrofoam everywhere and you can't make snowballs out of it, so it kind of stinks, but it's kind of cool to see every now and then. But the, the fact is, I've never been frightened enough to stay inside from a hailstorm. And this storm was supposed to fill Pharaoh, the Egyptians and Israelites, all with a sense of awe. For a moment they realized how small they were. Well, so here's what happens. Verse 24. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, a very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Now, throughout Scripture, there's lots of hail, not a lot, but there are several times that hailstorms occur, and they never go into description about them necessarily. They just say as part of God's wrath, this hailstorm occurred and damage was done. So in this case, though, they have what's called heavy hail. Now the hail that I remember and maybe you remember is anything but heavy. It was always small and teeny. And so I started doing some research about hail across the nation. And in the Midwest, there are several hailstorms. Maybe people who have been there know about that. Where hail can get pretty big, like size like an inch across. So you're talking about a little smaller than a golf ball size. And there have been recordings of hailstorms in our country and in Europe that they're like softball size. So that's pretty darn big of, of hail. It's like a big chunk of ice falling from the sky. Now, the biggest piece of hail, I think we have a picture of it. It says like hail, yeah. And that's not the biggest, but um, the biggest piece of hail to fall in the United States was 7 inches across and 18 inches around. So it's approximately the size of a volleyball, maybe a deflated volleyball a little bit. And it weighed just under 2 pounds. Okay, So that's pretty serious hailstone. And at that time, it fell into homes, crashed through roofs. Um, and this wasn't like... All of that hail is that size. It's in the midst of a hailstorm. You've got like, you know, a couple of those sides. And it caused damage, breaking windows on cars, denting the tops of cars, those types of things. But that's nothing. Okay, that's like a, that's like a little whisper in the wind compared to this thing. Now, if Revelation is the only other place to record a hailstorm as part of a plague. And I realize that Revelation is, is very apocalyptic in that, you know, maybe it's, it's, going descriptive, uh, hyperbole, and using exaggeration. But we're going to go with literal today because it's fun. And Revelation 16.21 says this about a plague. And if you look at Revelation 16, it has kind of a very similar pattern that follows for the plagues in Exodus as part of the end times plagues. It says, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God, I guess the ones who were alive, for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So let's just think about that for a second. If that's any indication, I'm going to say that it's similar. This is a massive hailstorm. So I was trying to go, okay, what is that? Well, 12.5 gallons of water is 100 pounds. But that doesn't even include what... A, uh, the air and stuff it would make, because I'm no scientist, but, you know, how when ice expands, it's bigger than that. So we're low budget here, right? So I made my own hailstone out of, like, uh, Christmas stuff. So this is probably 
something like what happened. And this is probably not even the 100-pound thing. It's probably bigger than this, but okay, so it's a little less. Holy smokes! That's a serious... And this isn't like, you know, one and then a bunch of little ones. All of the hailstones are falling like this. And that would be such a storm that you would sit there and do nothing but be in awe of it. So massive, so destructive, so scared to step outside your home because God says if you stay inside, you'll be saved. So either God is protecting the homes, those little mud adobes or whatever they had, from it crashing through or He's not inflicting it upon them. Massive hailstones. That's heavy hail. So when you think heavy hail, you don't think like, you're thinking this, crushing men. Because this is falling not like, you know, they say if you fall, drop a penny off the top of the Empire State Building, it goes in like six inches or something like that. Okay, this is a hundred pound hailstone coming from heaven. Serious destruction, obliterating people, obliterating trees. And this isn't normal trees, it says it broke the trees. Well, I don't know about you, but I get a Charlie Brown Christmas tree every year. Okay, I go to Pilchuck, I get the ugliest tree I can find. It like leans over, or they're just nasty looking, but it's kind of fun, right? These aren't Charlie Brown little Christmas trees that you can blow over with your breath. These are sycamore trees. Okay, sycamore trees are the trees that the pharaohs kind of really liked, and they planted, they had fruit, but they're thick. They're big, and it says it broke the trees, crushed men, killed cattle. It says more, the thunder. This is the first thing the pharaoh says, please take away. So take away the thunder and the hail. The thunder is massive, and I love thunder. I like counting the lightning and the thunder, you know, whether it's getting closer or farther away. But thunder that shakes the home, oh, is so cool. And whenever thunder ends up in Scripture, it's always related to the voice of God. And typically when it speaks, there's earthquake-like things that happen, which means everything is shaking. So much so in First Samuel, I think it's chapter 7, yeah, there's a battle that's about to happen and Samuel, the prophet, is making sacrifices. And so the Philistines feel like, hey, we'll attack them while they're doing this because they're all gathered there. And God thunders. And it's so powerful that it puts the Philistines into complete massive confusion. And they're routed by Israel. Thunder. So now you've got 100-pound hailstones and thunder. And if that's not... The worst, or the best, in my view, storm, you can imagine. You've got fire, which it could be fire. Most likely we're talking about lightning flashing in between everything, coming down. And Psalm 78 records again the plagues. It says, here's what happens, and here's what it says. It's awesome. 78.48 says, He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. Okay? So... Now we've got cattle dying from hail, and we've got sheep being zapped by thunderbolts. Man, that's got to be an impressive storm. I mean, you're just like, holy, you know, you can imagine it's coming down, and I would just be like, oh, that's awesome. It would be so awe-inspiring of the dread and the respect, and you, I mean, I felt small when I couldn't get my car out of my driveway, right? Where I've got snow piling up. This is a whole other world of massive storm. 
of God saying, let me show you my power. Let me show you how big I am. And so Pharaoh looks out and he sees, what have I done? And it is, his land is decimated. The flax that was used for clothing, and in particular some of the mummy wrappings, and the barley that was used for food and beer, and it's all decimated. And he's like, oh my goodness, I have messed up. And so he calls for Moses and Aaron. And I think the funniest thing to think about is like, who's going to want to go? You know? Okay, guys, the storm's not stopping. It's not, it's continuing the whole time. It's like, boom, 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 boom. You know, all these things. Can you guys go get Moses and Aaron? (laughs) What? And I wonder how many guys they had to send, you know? Send a guy out. Okay, you go. (laughs) You know? They get to like four. All right, go again. What? I'll kill you if you don't. Okay. They didn't have a choice, and so they go to get Moses and Aaron. They bring them back in the midst of this storm. And they're probably real close to Moses. Hey, Moses, you stay with me, man. Don't get, don't get ahead or far back, right? And they walk all the way up. And notice what Pharaoh says. Something a little bit different, we think. Sounds different. He says, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. So the other six times, you know, we'll just overlook those. But this time... I've sinned. Plead with the Lord, who has been enough of God's thunder and hail, and I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. And Moses says, okay, I will. And he tells him he'll pray for him. But then he adds something that maybe surprises us a little bit. He says, but as for you and your servants, I know you don't fear God. I'll pray, but God's not done yet. He tells him, even though he uses his religious words, that you don't fear God. And he probably says that because he's seen this same scenario play itself out six other times. Back and forth. I'm sorry, I'm wrong. I'll let you go, and then he doesn't. And he knows that, as you probably know, and maybe have experienced with people you love, just because someone says they've sinned, just because someone says they're wrong, just because someone says that God's Word is right, they could say a lot of things. But unless their behavior accompanies what they're saying, it's hard to believe. Now, there are many people, some I know and many I don't, who do not fear God, but they say that they do. And there are many people who go through the cycle of admitting they're wrong and uh, saying I made a mistake and even declaring themselves sinful, but they don't stop sinning. I think that at the core of it is because they fear something else more than they fear God. Something less than God fills them with awe. Something else's beauty captures them. Something else fills them with dread, or maybe this the dread of losing it. Something else, less than God, fills them with mystery and wonder, so much they want to go towards it more than they want to go towards God. 
And it's very easy for us to sit and go, yeah, I know that person. I know how she does and he does. Let's just talk about us and you and me. How do I respond to God? And in this text, I see there's three different options that we have. First one is Pharaoh. And Pharaoh flat out does not fear God. He does not believe in the one true God, despite what he says. His behavior clearly tells us that. And apart from crying out to God every now and then when the crap hits the fan, he does not care about God. He ignores God's word most of the time. He doesn't even pretend to worship God, the true God. And like Pharaoh, these kind of people are hostile and they're abstinent, or I'm sorry, obstinate towards God. And without apology, they worship all kinds of other gods. And some very clearly worship in other religions, a specific God. And some just worship an idol of, I guess you'd be like some kind of pagan, Oprah-ish spirituality, whereby their idols are their own happiness, their own prosperity, or their own pursuit of pleasure. Regardless of what it is, it's all self-exaltation, just like Pharaoh. These are the people who indulge themselves and their authority is their own emotion, their own intellect, their own experiences, which dictate what's right and what's wrong according to the moment of how they feel. And whatever they call God, and I say it that way because uh, I recently watched, there's a girl who um, was a cancer survivor. It's a credible, credible story. Uh, she was maybe mid-20s. I don't know what she is now, but she got cancer and she changed her lifestyle and um, she started an organization called uh, Crazy Sexy Cancer or something. It's an amazing story. It's been very encouraging and, and inspiring to many people who have had cancer and those who have loved people who have had cancer and men and women and all kinds. I watched an interview with her and she was a um, very uh, articulate young lady and one thing she said though stuck out to me and she said, you know what? Because they asked her, what one bit of advice would you give? And she's like, well, name something God and use it to find peace. And very much like Pharaoh, God becomes just a tool to be used for your own self-pleasure. Not the God of Scripture. In Romans 1.29, it describes these people who do not fear God. And we'll read this and go, well, those people aren't like that. Well, they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips and slanderers and haters of God and insolent and prideful or haughty and boastful. Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, And this is where it sounds just like Pharaoh. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, not only do they do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Pharaoh, without question, knows exactly what God's decree is. He knows exactly what the consequence is, and he does not care. For some people, they don't fear God. For the other, they're like the servants. And the servants of Pharaoh, it says, fear the word of God which is a little bit different. They feared the Word of God and what He warned them about enough to heed it and to kind of bring their livestock in to be protected. And these 
people, these servants and people that we know and that I know are the kind of people that serve God and obey God when it happens to benefit them. They'll live very upstanding lives, very moral, quote, Christian lives. And I was like this growing up, even into uh, my adolescent years and maybe even my young married years, where I was self-righteous. My obedience, whether I could be good or bad, dictated how I felt. We start viewing ourselves as good people because we do good things when it helps us or when God asks us to. But we don't fear God Himself. We give Him a bunch of stuff, but we'll never give Him our heart. And these people, to be honest with me, I don't really know what to do with them. Because of the people that look and say and speak like they're Christians and they're believers. So as a believer, I go, okay, you're a believer, right? Yes. You believe the Bible, right? Yes. You love God, right? Yes. Then why don't you do what he says? Uh, What do I do with that? And then the the non-believers, those who are not Christians or not church, whatever you want to call it, they don't know what to do with them either. Because they see him and they're like, you're a Christian, right? Right. Well, why doesn't your life look any different than mine? Good question. 2 Timothy 3 says it this way. Because I think at the core of it, they love something else more than God. Understand this. Then the last days there will become times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud and arrogant, Abusive, disobedient to the parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds just like Pharaoh, but no exception. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. These are the people... Who love the label, they love to say, they love to look like they're obeying, but they do not, when it comes down to it, fear God. And then we have what I think is what we all are called to be, which is what Moses does. And Moses is a man who fears God. This is a man for whom God's power and beauty, whose perfections fill him with awe to the extent that he will deny everything that the world might be able to offer him to follow God. You think about where Moses was. If you ever read, go back and read the original story, you got a guy who basically says, I don't like this call. God says, go before Pharaoh. He's like, are you kidding me? I'm not going before Pharaoh. I can't speak. I can't do this alone. You're talking about doing something that is impossible. And then when he goes and does it, and it doesn't work out the way he planned, he flat out accuses God of making a mistake and doing wrong. So that's who Moses starts with. And as he unleashes these plagues, you see a man that's completely transformed into someone who fears God more than men, more than what he can see, more than the storm. You see a man who every couple of weeks goes before Pharaoh because God tells him to. That's the only reason. 
And he goes before Pharaoh and he declares him the exact same message of repentance that he's heard for the last six months and hasn't responded. Because God tells him to. And he tells him there's more devastation coming because God tells him to. Knowing that, and we forget this, Pharaoh could kill him with a word anytime he wants to. But he goes before him knowing that he could lose his life because he fears God more than what men can give him or take from him. And he's never told how many plagues there are going to be. We know because we read the story. But he's never told when it's going to end. And I imagine Moses probably has gone through in his mind like, like I do. I wouldn't do it this way, God. If I was going to be releasing these people, and go on. But he never says anything. He never complains. He never tells him what he sees or what he feels or, or, what, or how things should be different. He follows God's word without excuse. And he goes every time Pharaoh suffers too much, hoping, because he doesn't know, that he'll repent this time. And he prays for him and releases or pulls back the plague. And he gets burned every time. But he doesn't make excuses for not going the next time. He doesn't complain about going. He doesn't justify it because of all the bad things he's experienced or what he's had to sacrifice. He obeys God because he fears God. He gets more awe from God than what he might be able to see or think or to evaluate in his own wisdom. But I think the coolest thing about it is that at the point where this nation is completely decimated, he goes before Pharaoh. Remember, the storm, like I said, is still raging, still ongoing. And in the middle of the storm, he walks several miles to come and see Pharaoh. And when he's going to go plead, he says, I'll plead, but I'm going to go outside the city first. And so he goes outside the city, walking. You remember, you got to imagine if you want, are they going to make it? Because they've seen some guys die from it. Seeing the faith of a guy willing to walk out in the middle of the storm. He doesn't stand in dread or even respect and wonder at the storm, but he's filled with awe of the God who sends the storm. And what he sees with his heart overwhelms anything he might see with his eyes. And he knows that he can walk into the middle of the storm without fear, saying to himself, perhaps, he has me. He knows he sees me, I will be still and know that He is God as the storm is raging. And I have to ask myself, do I fear God like that? Do I fear God like Moses did? Jesus Himself warned us, and we'll close in this, about fear. In Matthew chapter 10, He says this, 
verse 28 and a few after that. Do not fear those or what can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, and you can deny with much more than words, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So today I stand before you to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. And I am in awe of His beauty and His power and His justice and His love. But I am not in Christ because I fear God. I am not in Christ because I fear God. I fear God because Christ is in me. And there is a difference. Jesus did not live to give me just an example on how to live a God-fearing life and obey. He lived and died that He might give me the very heart that He lived that life with, that He might live through me, that I might make much of God and significantly less of myself. And so for those who are here today, If you don't fear God, let me just tell you, because that's what I'm called to do. The storm is real. The storm is real. Judgment's real. And I fear for you, and I pray that God will grant you repentance. And for those who, for many years, maybe for a short amount of time, maybe for longer, have just given Him lip service, and you've been telling people, maybe telling yourself, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and your heart is not His. You need to know, because it's my responsibility to tell you, Galatians 6-7 says that God will not be mocked. He will not be deceived. You will reap what you sow. And I pray, we love you so much. We love you so much. And I pray that your awe will come from the Lord and not from this insignificant temporal stuff that the world throws at you. But know this. 1 John is one of the most convicting epistles to read. That's why not a lot of people read it. And it simply says, if you say you are in the light, but you live in the darkness, you are a liar. You are a liar, and Christ is not in you. And if that doesn't shake you, those who say you're Christians, then you simply confirm what the Bible says. And for those who are in Christ, I should say for those for whom Christ is in, for those who really believe with all of your heart that you are sinful and in need of a Savior, for those who believe that Jesus came and lived the life that you should have and gives it to you because He died on the cross to pay for your sins. For those who really believe that Jesus really rose from the dead, 
you need to know that you are the ones who fear the Lord and there isn't a storm big enough. There is not a storm big enough to overcome us. There is no storm that God is not in control of. And our responsibility is to let the one who sends the storm fill us with awe and not be distracted by the storm itself. We take communion every Sunday and we do so in honor of what Jesus Christ has done to bring us back to Him. In honor of Him giving us a new heart. And if you fear God, if you believe all the things I just said, join us. But if you say you're a Christian and you are living in sin, unless you confess your sin, do not come up here and pour wrath on yourself as you celebrate the sacrifice God made and then make light of what He sacrificed for. And for those who do not fear God, I pray that if you feel your heart moving today, you will confess that you are sinful in need of a Savior and He will by grace give it to you and come celebrate with us. Let's pray. Father God, I pray with all of my soul, Lord, that You will fill us with a sense of Your power and beauty and grace and mercy so that our desires, God, are for You and that the distractions of this world, Lord, the things that pull us away from You will seem so insignificant. And that, Father, as You birth new life in our hearts, we will love You not out of duty or obligation, but because it is a compulsion. We want to be close to You. I thank You for allowing us to come in Your presence by the blood of Your Son. And it's in His blood we pray through Your Spirit. Amen.